0: Hey, guys, thank you for watching online all over the world. We are honored that you would watch Life Point Church services. Our mission statement around here is pointing people to a Christ-centered life, and we want to hear how that's happening through these sermons. So we would love for you to reach out to us through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and tell us how God is moving in your life. Also, if you're a part of this service, but, but you're not close to a local campus, we want to help you get connected to a local body. Please reach out to us, and we will recommend some great churches in your area for you to be a part of. Again, thank you for being a part of Life Point Church Online, and we hope God blesses you. Uh, like I said, uh, last week we started a series called The Inversion Law. And R.C. preached for me last week, so thank you all for letting me be gone. Uh, and and R.C. preached the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, and uh, and basically what we've seen from 12 on to even today is that Christians are meant to live radically different lives. We are to look different than the world. Matter of fact, the, the people should look at us and notice something is radically different. Something's up. Something ain't right. It's like if you looked at a worship leader and a pair of Duluth traders, right? Like something would be off, right? You know. And, and so we are to be radically different from the world, and and and, and that's what we've seen through uh, through twelve. And, and last week we saw uh, through through being submissive to governing authorities. We saw verses like we're to pay our taxes, not cheat on our taxes right? We're, we're to uh, love our enemies, uh, not, like, not hate our enemies, right? Not to lash out on them. We're, we're not to have the same financial stresses that the world has, right? We're, we're to be, to live within our means. We're to we, be generous givers. We're, we're to, to, to uh, uh, you know, we're not supposed to loot and light things on fire when our, you know, our candidate doesn't get elected. We're to pray for the guy we didn't vote for, Right, and so these are the things we saw last week that Christians are supposed to think differently than the world. We're, we're supposed to be absolutely countercultural. Everything that the world sees should differ from how we view things. Our worldview should be night and day different. And this is the inversion. Of all this is a Christ-centered life that we're to be different from the world. Scripture calls us aliens, foreigners, strangers in a in a in a strange land. That this world is not our home. This earth is not our forever home. That there's a kingdom that's not of this world that we live for. So we're to be different, countercultural, radical radical living. And, And as believers, Paul has continued to say throughout that we are no longer about me, 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 me. Matter of fact, our lives would be spent on dying to self and dying to find ways that we can serve others, dying to ourselves to meet the needs of the church, dying to our needs to serve the community, serve the poor, dying to ourselves in order to be a blessing to those around us. And so we see Paul continually just walking us through 12 and 13, this radical Christ-centered inversion law life. And... Excuse me. And, and, and he's continued, like he started it in verse 12 when he said that we are to be living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God, laying ourselves, our dreams, our ambitions on the altar, and saying, God, use us for your kingdom purposes. And that's where Paul has been taking us through, and today is is no different. He's going to continue to encourage us to die to our own desires, to put on Christ. And so we're going to to read that in the text today. So we're going to start in verse 8, if you've got your Bibles. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All right, let's stop there. What does owe no one anything mean? Because some people take this verse and say that you should never incur any debt whatsoever. You should never borrow anything. You should never be indebted to anyone else. Uh, You know, so, so what are the implications for believers? Does this verse restrict Christians from borrowing money? Does it restrict us from borrowing our neighbor's rake? Right? Does it restrict us from borrowing borrowing a dollar and buying a latte at the cafe? Right? Or 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 like a home loan? Right? Does it? Uh, I don't think it does. I think the 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 uh, primary way we can know that is by verse seven from last week, where it says, "Pay to all what is owed them." I I don't think this verse is being restrictive in that you can't borrow anything. But what I do think this verse is saying is, a that there are some financial uh, there's some financial wisdom. There needs to be some financial wisdom in uh, wh- how much debt you incur and what types of debt that you take on. Um, and, and, and so I think there's some biblical wisdom in, in you know, not racking up a whole bunch of credit card debt and, and living beyond your means and those kinds of things. But when it comes to something like a home loan, I, I think those things. But what the verse is saying, I believe in principle is that it's saying that when you borrow you pay them back, so you pay on time. You are a blessing to the lender, right? And so, when, so that means that you're not going to be late on your home loan. You're not going to be late on your whatever, whatever you know you have borrowed. you if you've borrowed a rake, you're going to return it in a timely fashion. You're not going to forget about it. And three months later, say, oh, I borrowed your rake, <laughs> right? You know stuff like that. So, so you're going to be at due diligence with the things you borrow. You're going to be uh, setting a good standard with how you pay them back. Now, th- what that means for us is, again, that means you have to live within your means to be able to do that. You, you have to live within, you, you can't live outside of your means and, and be able to pay everybody you need to pay, And so that might mean you got to scale back, you know, the American dream you're chasing, racking up credit card debt, whatever, you need to get out of that because Scripture has not only called us to pay our debts, but it's called us to be generous givers. And so you can't be a generous giver if you're up to your eyeballs in debt. And so you got to begin to live within uh, your means. Now, I don't want to just hit you with a cane and say, get your life right. I want to encourage you and say, our church can help you. We have great people around here who are awesome at helping you create a budget, live within a budget, looking at your situation and helping you kind of see outside looking in perspective of, hey, get rid of this, do this, change this, move this, right? All that kind of stuff. We have financial classes, counseling. Man, we want to help you do that. And so if you're in that situation and you need some help from that, come see me. Come see, uh, come tell someone at the Discover Life Point booth and we want to help you get connected with some folks who can help you in that area. But this verse moves on to say that there is one debt that you'll always owe and never be able to pay off. That debt is the debt of love of others. It, it, he's saying here, basically, that you, we will never reach this place in our life to where we can say, "All right, I have loved people enough. I've paid it off. I'm done. I've loved people as I've ought to have loved people. No, he says, we'll always have this burden on us to to keep loving. No matter how long you've been a Christian or how, how much you've grown as a Christian, you still have room to grow in love, right? And matter of fact, that love is the crux of the Christian life. You know, Jesus said that you will know, the world will know you are my disciples by how you love one another right? Jonathan Edwards, a great pastor, he said this, the evidences of love or their absence were the best tests by which Christians may try their experience, whether it be a real Christian experience. What's he saying? He's saying that, well, basically, do they love? That will show if their heart's been changed by Jesus, He's just echoing what 1 John says. If you read 1 John, 1 John says, if you say you love Jesus and yet you hate your brother, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. That's what 1 John says. And so this idea that uh, when you are saved by God, he changes your heart and makes you a lover of people. Now, I want to be very careful here because I'm not teaching, this is not moralism. I'm not teaching you, well, you got to work up enough emotion and start loving other people. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm teaching. A matter of fact, if you do those things, if you if you see yourself as I'm going to try to work up the emotion and try to motivate myself to love people more without a relationship with Jesus, that is moralism, and that's depending on your good deeds and and love of others to get you something that it can't buy you, namely salvation. Right. So the foundation for loving others is a it comes from our salvation in christ and so the salvation of christ in us is the fountain that flows out love for other people it is and so if you try to love other people without the foundation of christ in you a you're going to burn out two you're going to hate it three you are going to try to be depending on something that uh cannot merit you salvation right and this is this is the uh the inversion law at work. We we love others not to be made right with God, but we love others because we've been made right with God. We love others because he has first loved us and saved us. And and just a reminder that our love of, of others will not save us. And this is a lot of moralistic relativism. This is, a lot of the world said, well, just you know, peace, love, you know, all that stuff. But our love of people will not save. Matter of fact, you can be the nicest, most loving, uh, cookie-making, quilt-crocheting grandma and, and be on your way to hell. Because being nice and loving and cookie-making and quilt-crocheting for the poor is not things that get you into heaven. And so, this is the common false thinking of our culture that if I'm just good enough, if I'm just loving enough, if I just don't kill anybody, God's gonna let me in. And that's not the way it works. We love because we were first loved. We're able to love others because God has changed us and changed our heart, right? All right, let's read on, verse 9 and 10. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. All right, so Paul pulls out ten, the Ten Commandments here, right? And he's showing us essentially uh, what love is by showing us what love doesn't do. And essentially, Paul is saying love does no harm. Love does, not wrong, uh, does no wrong to a neighbor, My son told me this week, we have a golden rule in our class, which is what? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Paul is just echoing that very thing. He's saying the very baseline of love, the the very baseline of love is that you would do to people, you would treat people how you would want to be treated. And so any one of the commandments that he's listed is not treating people how you would want to be treated. So if you commit adultery you are doing to someone what you would never want done to you. When you commit murder, you are doing to someone what you would never want done to you. When you are stealing. Again, when you are coveting something. All of these things. Paul is saying, and, and he wraps it up by saying, uh, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. All of these breaking of commandments shows that you love yourself and you're not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You just continually love yourself. So when you commit adultery, it's not a love of a different woman or love, it's definitely not a love of your current woman. It is a love of yourself. So you want to meet your own needs more than anything else in the world. When you murder, when you covet, when you do those things, you, you are saying, when you steal something, you're saying, what I want is more important than what they want, and I want what they have. And all of this, he's saying, hey, do you love self more than you love your neighbor, more than you love someone else? And so it, 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 he's essentially he's saying the very baseline of love is that you would do, not, do no harm to other people, that you would not be hurtful to other people. Now, now this doesn't mean that that's all love is. It is just saying that is the very, uh, the very baseline. It doesn't do less than that. It doesn't do less than that. It fulfills these commandments. And, and if he listed a bunch of more positive ones, it would fulfill those as well, which other scriptures do. But this is the baseline he's saying. So, so let's read on. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So here he goes. He's saying you should be living radically different lives. You should be loving people. Your love should flow out of your foundation of being saved by Christ. The inversion law, and, and, and our lives should be as, as different. And he goes into saying, our lives should be as different as a man asleep compared to a man awake. That's how different our lives should look from from the world and. Paul, okay, what has Paul taught us so far? From 12 through 13, he has taught us that we should uh, offer our bodies as living sacrifice unto God. We should not conform to the world. We should be... uh, transforming uh, our, uh, by the renewing of, being transformed by the renewal of our minds, right? So he's been giving us all these things. And then Paul's going to give us the motivation for all that. Living sacrifice, loving people, uh, uh, being transformed, being renewed, uh, not conforming to the world. What is the motivation? He says, you know the time. You know the time. Well, Time for what? Like, I know the time for lunch every day because my stomach starts yelling at me. What's he talking about? He's specifically talking about, you know the time. You know the imminent return of Jesus is at hand. For you know the times. Jesus is on his way. Therefore, the people that are the children of God should be awake, should be alert. Those looking forward to that great day should live radically different lives. See, Paul is saying this. If you know Christ... If you have been saved by Christ, You you should be awake. Why? Because you should be constantly looking for the day, the the hour, the moment that Jesus splits the sky open and comes back to make all things new again. We should be constantly prepared and ready. It's it's the parable of the ten virgins, right? You have five virgins who had their lamps and their oil and their stock. They're prepared. They're ready. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And then five virgins who don't have enough oil. They're Lamps aren't ready. They're not prepared for the bridegroom to come. And when the bridegroom does come, the ones that are not prepared go to get oil. And the and the bridegroom takes the five that were prepared into him, into the kingdom. And the five that were not prepared were left out. So here is the constant view of the believer that we await a coming king. Our eyes are set to the sky. We are waiting for Christ to come back, make all things new. We're ready, waiting for our bridegroom to return and to Free us from this body of death. That's what we wait for. That's the time we know is at hand. So when Paul says, You know the time, he's saying, Wake up. You should be living radically different. Lives and, and he uses several metaphors to make his point. Unbelievers are sleeping and walking in the darkness of night. Believers are supposed to be awake and walking in the light of day because they're waiting for Jesus. Then he goes on to this verse, and I, I love it. Salvation is nearer to those near, Sorry, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul is given a word of hope. To those of us that are groaning through this life, we, we, we've been saved, but our salvation is not yet complete, right? What do I mean by that? I mean, our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is already removed. We, we are justified. Romans 8.1 says that, uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So our condemnation is gone, but our salvation is Much more than those things too, right? Upon completion of our salvation, it, it, it means that we will be finally done with sin. Now, I know those are just words, but think about that. Done with sin. Done with temptation. Done with the fight. Done with trying to live holy in an unholy land. Done with trying to be light in a dark world. Done with disease, cancer, done. Depression, done. Discouragement, done with sinning. And the trump card of all of that done with seeing Christ dimly as in a foggy, dirty mirror. We will see Christ fully. He will be face to face with us. And we will see him in all his glory. And we will see and we will savor Christ with all that we are finally. There will be no more just reading about him or 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 just seeing shadows and pictures of him, we will see him. And we will worship him. And so Paul says, Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so if anything at all, every day when we wake up in the morning, we can begin to praise God and say, thank you, God, that I am one day closer. You know, God has marked the day that you're going to die. He knows it. We don't know it. I don't know it. He knows it. Every day I wake up, I'm a day closer to seeing Jesus. Whether he comes again, he splits the sky open and comes to make all things new, or I die and get to be with the Father, I'm one day closer. Every day I wake up. So every day, salvation is nearer to me now than when I first believed. Salvation is nearer to me now, today, than it was yesterday. Salvation is nearer to me today than it was a week ago. It's closer. We're almost there. We're closer. And so in light of that, what do we do? Look at verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let, uh, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Okay, parents, you're going to be able to resonate with me here. Uh, have you ever tried to walk in the darkness? I mean, okay, so it's, it's you know, midnight 30 or something you got to get something you forgot you, you need to get something from the kitchen right and you don't want to turn the lights on because you're kind of like half awake half asleep right you don't want to ruin what you got going you know what i'm saying and so you don't want the light to come on and you know dracula or whatever you know burn you so you're kind of feeling you're feeling along the walls right you're kind of walking through you you kind of cognitively you know where that kitchen table is and so you're kind of You get there, right? You touch that kitchen table, right? Uh, And for parents, especially parents of small children, uh, you've done this and you've stepped on a Lego before. Is I I don't know if for those of you don't know, kids. let, Let me let me teach you something. At night, Legos grow spikes. Okay, death spikes that ruin your world. Like you, like you want to chop off your foot in that moment. Like, just be done with it. It's, it's useless now, right? It's so... Keep walking through, like, but this is the this groping, this walking through the dark, this kind of, this is what the world, this is what those trapped in sin, this is what those who don't have Christ live every day. Is just groping, trying to find something, trying to remember some kind of light, trying, trying to find out where something is. They're just walking in darkness, is what the scripture says. They're asleep, they're sleepwalking. But not those who believe. Those who believe have the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the only light. There is no hope outside of him. He's the only hope of walking freely and uprightly and dodging the Legos. He's the only hope. But it's crucial to keep this in mind because the world sells itself as the one enlightened, doesn't it? The world is constantly saying that it's the one that's bright, progressive, enlightened. And it portrays Christians as being in the dark. According to the world, if you believe in moral absolutes, if you believe in authoritative right and wrong, then, then you live in the dark ages. You are the one blind. If you believe in an ancient book of he- Hebrew religious customs and beliefs as relevant to our enlightened times, you need an education. That's constantly what the world sells you. But the Bible says the absolute inverse. The world's in darkness when it comes to God. The world's in darkness when it comes to man. According to the world, the world says that man is basically good. No need of a savior. We're doing well on our own. But the Bible says there's no one good. There's no one righteous. No, No, not one. There's no one who seeks God. All fall short of the glory of God. The world is in darkness when it comes to our purpose for living. It says make all you can, get all you can, insulate yourself all you can, get all the insurance you can, protect yourself all you can. But God says that the person who stores up treasure on earth and is not rich towards God is a fool. The world's also in darkness when it comes to death and eternity. The world says that the default destination for humanity is heaven. But the scripture says that the default destination for humanity is hell. So we're not born little angels, and somewhere along the line we kind of slip into some kind of spiritual spiral in which we were going to heaven, and then all of a sudden somehow we lied a few times to our parents, or we said no when we should have said yes, and all these things, and then all of a sudden we become this individual bound for hell. No, we were born rebels, hating God, and those of us who came to Christ later in life can give testimony to the fact that nothing I did before. before. Before my salvation was out of love for God. I hated all things about God. We were born dead in sin. We were born rebels. That's that's the plight of man. Our default destination isn't heaven. Are you kidding me? As if there's not a God and that God doesn't have a standard. And there is not an authoritative word on what that standard is. No. The default destination of all humanity is not heaven. Every soul needs a Savior. And without a Savior, you suffer the consequences. That's what the Bible says. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in London, died in like the 80s, I believe. He said the world wouldn't go on living as it does for a second if it knew about the judgment to come. The world wouldn't go on living like it does for a second if it knew of the judgment to come. If it knew that Jesus, what he says in Revelation is that there's going to come a moment that he splits the sky open and he's not coming as a, as a loving, saving, sacrificial lamb. He's coming as a roaring lion. He's going to be riding a white horse, carrying a sword, a robe dipped in blood, coming to judge the whole world. And so if you knew of the judgment to come, you would no longer be asleep in your sins. But the world is is asleep to it. They're not awake to that truth. They don't want to believe it. They want to believe in their own God. One that doesn't wield a sword. One that just wants good things for you. I want you to get that new job. But that's not the complete picture of the Scripture. And its we were all dead in sins. We all walked in darkness, groping about, trying to find our way. And then God saved us. He awakened us from our stupor of, of sleep. He, we sing songs. We, we were blind, but now we see. We're dead. Now we're alive. We were asleep. Now we are awake. And I love here that Paul says, because God brings us out of our stupor of unbelief. He, he awakens us to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life. And then he says, put on the armor of light. I love this. I love that word, armor, because it is a great picture of weaponry, because the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle. You look, if you read the New Testament to see how many times this life, this radical life, this inverse life of living for the gospel is a battle, you would be blown away. It's a battle. So we put on uh, the, the armor of life. So, so if you're a believer, if you, you, you are a Christian, if you've been made awake, to be awake is to be at war. So, so you've been brought from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of light. You, you've been made a new creation. You, you are a child of God now. You have been saved, right? So what remains for us then is to begin to live like it, dress like it, fight like it, fight the good fight of faith. Now, now I, I want to I wanna explain something to you because in our world, everywhere you turn, whether you know it or not, if you're a believer, there are, Weapons aimed at your chest and your mind. And you, you have attacks on your emotions, on your will, on your reason. Everything in this world, the enemy is trying to get and shoot, shoot, shoot darts at you. But, but what kind of battle is it? Because I don't think it's a typical battle. If, if Satan, was, if our enemy was seriously just cutting off heads, we would say, oh, I don't want my head cut off. I'm not going to go over there. That's not what he does, right? If, if, if Satan was, you know, in however our world portrays him, like you're all dressed in red and red, red horns and a pitchfork, standing beside that temptation, that sin, you would say, Oh, well, I'm not going near that. He's got a pitchfork, right? He's got a tail with a point on it. I'm not getting over there. That's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. What he does is, and I want to explain to you like this. If the armor of light that we're to put on is aimed at staying awake, then that must mean that the enemy's primary mode of attack is to lull you to sleep. He's not just chopping off heads. He's rocking you like a baby. He's trying to lull you into slumber. He's trying to get you to fall asleep to lull you into our entertainment-saturated culture, to even forget that you're in a battle. And even now, there are some of you in here, you, you have a hard time believing you're in a battle. Wake up. You have been lulled to sleep. You are being rocked even now by the enemy. Wake up. You don't believe me. Let me help you. Do you notice how concerned our culture is over what's happening in their sitcom or the Grammys more so than we care about reading our Bibles? Have you noticed even in your own life, even in, maybe the enemy has tempted you to want it all? Like, you gotta have it all. You, you're gonna work hard, the American dream, your, your 2.5 kids, your white picket fence. You're gonna have it all. You're gonna raise your kids, you're gonna protect, you're gonna have it all, and you're gonna work long hours to get it all, and all the while you're neglecting the discipleship of your children. You're being lulled to sleep. Your kids don't need more stuff. They need you. This is the way the enemy lulls us to sleep. Or we get saturated in fantasy living as opposed to biblical community. Now, listen, I struggle with these things, too. I don't want you to think I'm up here on my high horse. I have a TV with over... I don't know, a thousand I don't know how many channels is on the thing. It's an ungodly amount of channels. I watch two. <laughs> I why? But they get you in because the one you want is like the package you got to get 400 channels with. So the temptation for me, too, is to sit there and think, think, think. Well, maybe this isn't your thing. Maybe this is. Hmm. 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 Oh, it's midnight. Do you see how our culture is trying? Very easily, the enemy is in our homes, powered by two double A's. He's in our homes and he's rocking us to sleep. And we start forgetting that there's a battle. We start forgetting that there's a spiritual war at our doorstep. We forget. We're lulled to sleep. We're rocked to sleep. These things, man, they're a lullaby to believers. And we have to shake it off. We have to wake up. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I do want to say that those things aren't inherently evil. They're not. But I think it's good for us to question all the time, are we more concerned? Are we more passionate about? Are we looking more towards like, the gospel and Christ-honoring things or things that will burn up when Jesus comes again? I'm passionate about sports, but in the end, my sports team are going to burn up in the end. And sometimes I'd like for that to happen sooner than others, but it's not, it's not going to be important in the end. So if I live all my days painting my chest for my favorite sports team and all my life is about football or baseball or basketball or whatever, then have I wasted my life? I've just been sleepwalking, caring about things that don't matter, spending money on things that don't matter. We're lulled and rocked to sleep. and We've got to wake up to the battle we're in. We, we must put on the armor of light. And how we do that, faith, hope, and love is how we do it. Faith, hope, and love is what keeps us awake. Let me read this last passage. He's going to give us some more practical here. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, how do you put on the armor of light? How do you stay awake to the battle? He says here make no provision for the flesh. That word provision means a forethought. Don't let your mind even begin to think down the way of sinful gratification and desires. That's why the scripture also says to take every thought captive. Now, we know how this works, right? We know how this works. We know that certain things that we think about, certain, certain thinking will lead to uh, and awaken certain sinful desires in us. And so what we do to battle those things, to battle the enemy in our lives, is that we make no provision for the flesh. We battle every thought. We are awake. We are aware. You're not going to come at me with these evil thoughts. I'm going to fight it with Scripture. I'm going to fight it with other things. But you're not going to win in that area. I'm going to make no provision for the flesh. That's why Romans 12, the beginning of it, he says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The battle in the mind is a, is, is the front lines for our, for our living in Christ. It's the front lines. What you believe is how you behave. If you continue to let those thoughts roll around in your mind, you're going to continue to pursue sinful desires. So if you're bored, if you're lonely, tired, discouraged, feeling hopeless. Don't ponder the relief of those things in porn or drugs or alcohol or laziness or work. You deal with those things by fighting the good fight of faith. You cling to Christ. When the enemy would want to use those thoughts in your mind, to spiral you down a pathway of guilt and shame, you fight it with faith. So the, the negative is, make no, 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 no provision. The, the negative is, make no provision to the, to, to, to the flesh. So yes, we say no to all those things. The positive of the scripture here says, put on Christ. So, yes, but if we're just over here and we're white knuckling and saying, I'm not going to do this, 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 what are we going to do? <laughs> we're going to end up doing that. So it's more than just I'm not going to do this. It's I'm going to put on Christ. Faith, hope, and love. I'm going to walk you through just real quick faith, hope, and love. Faith is bringing to mind the, the, the words of God bring into mind the the scripture it awakens more faith in us in jesus that's what that's why reading your Bible is so important to you now I, I want you not to be I want to be clear here because some of you may have a devotional time and and it's you know you think in your mind okay i'm gonna I'm gonna spend 15 minutes and i'm gonna you know read for 15 minutes or I'm going to get a devotional book like a Jesus calling, or utmost force, high, or something like that, and I'm I'm going to do that day and check. I'm done with that. That is not what our personal time in the scriptures is supposed to be. It's not a checklist. If it's just a checklist, then all you're doing is trying to do some kind of good deed in order to say, oh, I've done the good deed today, God. Aren't you happy with me? That's not what it's about. When you spend time in the scriptures, whether it be 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or five minutes, it doesn't matter. What you are doing is you are equipping your heart. You are, as the psalmist says, you are putting the word of God in your heart that you might not sin against him so what you're doing you you prepare yourself I do it in the morning I spend time in the word in the morning and 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 if it was just an hour that I spent in the word I got 23 other hours in the day to not spend in the word so it's not just about that but it's about taking that it letting it be a sword to me and as I live out my day I have a fresh word when the enemy comes at me I've got a fresh word say nah listen to what I read this morning Listen to, to, the, to the hope I got from God's word this morning. And it it it's got my faith, it's got my faith in Christ so above this temptation, so above this thought. And, and when those things come, you have the word stored up in your mind, in your heart, so that you can battle the enemy. So when you're reading the Bible, you're not just you're not just saying, okay, I gotta, you know, I have to do this. No, bro, you are putting on weaponry, you're suiting up. You're loading your gun. You're putting your sword (laughs) on. That's what you're doing. Awake to the battle that you're in, and then you will see the necessity of this every morning. You will see the necessity of strapping up every morning. Without it, it'd be like going to the front lines of a war with no weapon. (laughs) What are you going to do? You're going to get shot big dummy suit up armor up strap up we're going to war this is the second thing faith hope hope is just remembering the promises of god remembering that man when you're in the valley this isn't our home this isn't our hope we have a greater hope coming jesus is bigger than this we have eternity for us waiting for us the hope and the, the promises of God. He's promised to never leave me and never forsake me. I can't even see him. I can't feel him. But I know I have hope in the promises that he's made to me. Faith, hope, and love. When we remember the works of Christ. All that he's done on the cross. I hope in the promise of the cross. You sang that earlier. When we remember what he's done. When we didn't deserve it, we remember what we were. Rebels, dead in sin, God-haters, falling short of the glory of God, sinning, not just accidentally, but willfully. And he saved us while we were yet sinners. It wells up a deep love for God in you. Faith, hope, and love. These are the things that keep the believer awake and alert to the battle at hand. These are the things that arm you and keep you you ready for battle. These are the things that are going to enable you to make no provision for the flesh in your mind. Faith, hope, and love. These are the things that are going to empower you to live radical lives. Lives that don't look like the world. Because why? Oh, because... I have faith in Jesus that his word is true. I have hope in the promises that he has set out before me that that he's going to carry me to the end. And this world is not my home. And love because I didn't deserve salvation and he lavished it on me. One last thought is that when you are putting on the armor of light, when you are strapping up with faith, hope, and love, It's very difficult. When you're doing that daily, when you're doing that hourly, it's very difficult for darkness to cling to you. Right? It's hard to watch porn while you're praying. It's hard to engage in the kingdom of darkness when you're swinging a sword at it. So get in the battle. Wake up. Are you being lulled to sleep? I'm going to leave you with this. This is Psalm 101, 2 through 3. I want to give you this verse just as maybe you'll memorize it this week. And you'll hide the word of God in your heart so that we might not sin against him. Psalm 101, 2 through 3. I will ponder the way that is blameless. How often do you do that? Instead of giving provision to the flesh, give provision to the Spirit. Ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. One more time. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Take every thought captive for Christ. Live radical lives by by filtering what you put in your life. Don't be lulled to sleep. Wake up. Faith, hope, and love keeps us awake. Keeps us alert. Keeps us in the battle. Fight the good fight of faith and finish the race that the Lord has set out before us. That's the charge, church. Wake up and Fight. Let me pray for us, Father. we confess that we um, we are so often lulled to sleep, and oftentimes it's it's uh we rely on different jolts to wake us up, whether that be a sermon or a spiritual experience or a difficult time. But my prayer, God, is that you would make us wake. You, you would wake us up, make us alert, keep our eyes open for the, for the enemy's attacks in our life. And that we would battle them with faith, hope, and love. We would battle them with you, God. Help us to make no provision for the flesh. Help us to live lives that are countercultural to the world. Because you've changed us. Because you've saved us. Our greatest concern is no longer sitcoms and fantasy football and sports teams and, and The Bachelor. Our greatest concerns are the gospel. And, and the mission of God to take that gospel to the ends of the world. What makes our heart pump and excites us and, and moves us to mission is not making money, building fame or popularity. What moves us is you. Keep us awake to that truth, God. There are so many lullabies being played in our life that would suck us in and rock us to sleep. I pray for the soul that is in this room that even now, God, they hear your word and they hate it. I pray, Father, That you would bring the dead to life. That you would give the blind sight. You would do what only you can do. And that's save us. Save a sinner. Father, you are our hope. You are our everything. Make us like you, Lord. Awake, fighting, fighting. Waiting for the day that you split the sky open and you end sin forever. (laughs) We can't wait for that. I pray for for this church. God, I pray for my church. May we not walk out as lambs among the wolves, (laughs) but maybe walk out wielding a sword. May we not be so foolish to think that all this battle talk does not include us. But God, that we would be ready. We would suit up, strap up, and fight the good fight of faith. Help us to do that, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.